You're listening to the free preview episode of On Grief, a podcast about death by Karen Geyer. To unlock the full episodes, please visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod. Memberships start at just $2 a month. This is On Grief, a podcast about death. Episode 17, Widows. When we think of widows, we often think of women who resemble the Golden Girls. They're in their late 60s to late 90s, and they've lived a long, good life with their husband who has predeceased them. That's not always the case. And you're going to hear today from four widows who have joined me who all found each other through the internet and they want to tell their story of survival and hope for others. Joining me are Shannon Culver, Alexi Landry, Janet Sow, and Sarah Keast of Lost and Found, which is a store in Toronto that is dedicated to gifts that promote wellness and are hard to find gifts for hard to gift for situations. Welcome ladies. When people think about widows, they often think about somebody who has blue hair and they're in their 80s. So what is it like for you to be going through that part of life at such a young age? I found it very, very, very strange because to your point, people do assume that a widow is an old woman dressed in black and, you know, mourning her husband of her whole life. And so when my husband died, I was just almost 41. And in my social circle, none of my girlfriends were even starting to get divorced yet. Like people were still just having babies and just like, we weren't even at the divorced category yet of the demographic. And all of a sudden my husband, all of a sudden I was a widow. So I felt very alienated because I couldn't, I didn't know anyone that was like me. And yeah, I just want, I, I remember thinking, I wish there was some sort of widow scarlet letter that I could wear on my shirt so that people would understand why I was behaving so erratically. Like, it just felt weird to walk around in the world looking exactly like what people would expect a four-year-old woman with two young kids to look like, but not have anyone understanding that I was actually experiencing this super rare thing that usually happens to old ladies. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's definitely strange being a widow when you're still, like, young. It makes people uncomfortable, too. It's so rare that when people find that out about you, you can sort of see it on their face, the horror. You know, I had somebody actually say to me, you are living everyone's worst nightmare. <laughs> and it was you know, a highly unsensitive thing to say, but it was true. I was living everyone's worst nightmare and people just didn't know how to handle it. You know, people know how to handle things when somebody's grandparent dies or even like as an adult when your parent dies. But it's so out of the ordinary that it just made people really uncomfortable. And that was hard to to deal with because you're so uncomfortable as it is. And you're, 
you're living in this reality that, that you couldn't really imagine. And then somehow you feel like you're also holding other people's hands through the process because they just can't fathom that this happened to anybody. And the biggest fear is how is it going to, you know, how might this happen to me? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like it's, there's a bit of shock and awe that just makes it even worse when you're already dealing with grief. So what are the best or worst things that somebody said to you while you were in the grieving process? I can think of a worst thing off the top <laughs> of my head. When my partner died, I stayed at my parents' house for about six weeks. And then when I moved back to my home that I lived in with Rob, my partner, I saw one of my neighbors and it was this older man and he knew like our we had, were pretty close with our neighbors and so he knew that Rob had died and I think he just didn't know what to say to me and so he said so everything pretty much back to normal and I was like <laughs> no, no. <laughs> things are not back to normal like just because I'm back in the house like Rob's yeah. dead this is the farthest <laughs> thing from normal and I just sort of, I didn't, and I could tell on his face as soon as the words came out of his mouth, he, he knew it was a stupid thing to have said, but people just don't know what to say to you in yeah. that kind of situation. I don't know if it's the worst thing that people said to me, but I definitely cringe inwardly and sometimes just really want to punch someone when they say like, oh my God, I can't imagine living with like living with what you're living with or I can't imagine going through what you're going through and I'm like I know like it's awful like you telling you saying that is reinforcing the fact like this is unimaginable for most of this of most of society like it didn't make me feel better or when someone says oh my god I don't know how you do it you're so strong you're like mm-hmm. oh my god thank you for reminding me how hard this is um yeah the strong one's interesting because And we've talked about this a lot that so people have said to us like a lot over the past three years, like you guys are so strong, you're so strong. And your first reaction, at least my first reaction is, no, I'm not. I'm just coping and I'm doing what you would do. And you would have done the same thing had you been in my position. And that was my position for a long time. And I've since revised that. I, I now say you know what yeah like we are strong like we are doing amazing things and just because you anyone might do it in the same position I just I've stopped undervaluing how amazing it is what we have gone through what I think is harmful about saying you're so strong is that it it makes you feel like you have to keep being strong yeah like so suddenly you're seen as this really strong woman or this really strong mother this you know strong person who who sometimes really just needs to fall apart and if you start to internalize that and think that oh gosh everyone thinks I'm so strong and right now I don't Uh feel strong and then it feels like maybe you're letting people down when when really you need that option to not be strong because sometimes you just can't be yeah I think what's hard about taking that statement when someone says you're so strong is that it's almost like they don't recognize how hard it is or what you really want is someone to say not like I'm sorry for you but it must be so hard or that to to really just validate that part of it yeah like validate the times when you were not when it's really when it's really shitty and it's really tough and maybe you're not so strong and to recognize that because it is 
especially in the early days, that's the hardest thing. And maybe that goes to the best thing that people said. Uh, to me, the best thing that people said was, fuck, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, like uh, I'm so sorry. Like, I have nothing. Probably the best thing to say is I don't know what to say. Know what to say. I have no words. There's nothing I can say to make this better. Just know I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. And you're not alone. But this sucks. Yeah, I remember a friend said to me, when I told him that Rob had died, he was obviously really shocked. And he said, I don't know what to say to you right now. I've never had a friend die. Like, this is basically uncharted territory for me. And so I I have no idea, like, what I should say to you. I'm just, I'm really sorry, and I'm here for you. And that actually felt really empathetic to me because it made me realize, oh, I've never had a friend die either. Like this is, <laughs> this, you know, an extreme version of having a friend die, but I hadn't lost someone young in my life either before. And so it was also uncharted territory for me. And so sort of acknowledging like, you don't know what to say, but I also don't know what to say is actually quite comforting. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a on a practical tip, something that someone said to me very early on was so helpful, and I like learned from it, and I continue to do it. Somebody in a condolence card to me wrote, "Please don't feel you have to respond to this." Mm-hmm. And I remember in the like early weeks feeling like so overwhelmed because the like constant barrage from like ev- every avenue of communication, like text message, Facebook Messenger, like emails, phone calls, cards, people were like inundating me with condolences and with gift cards and like help and all these things and my like upbringing has like trained me to like be gracious and thank people and like you know thank people when they've done things for you so I remember feeling like this crazy weird guilt that I had to respond to all of these fucking messages and like it was making me feel just it was adding to my like feeling of overwhelmness and and this card that said please don't feel you have to respond to this really changed my perspective. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to say thank you to these 50 people that donated to my kids' education fund. Like, I don't I don't have to respond to these 25 text messages. So now whenever I send somebody a condolence gift or a condolence card or, or an email or whatever, I always make sure to like stress the fact that they don't need to add replying to my message to their overwhelming list of things to do. So super practical, but like, it is something that has changed that. Part. I forget who it was who did it for, who wrote that, but them writing that has changed how I interact with people, newly grieving people mm-hmm. going forward. So I found that super helpful. When somebody dies at a young age, it's usually a sudden death. So how has this type of death affected your grief? Has it made it more complicated? I remember when I first met Alexi, she had seen my partner's obituary, a mutual friend had posted it on Facebook, and we didn't actually know each other, but we had some mutual friends, and so she reached out to me because my partner died just like three weeks after her husband, and I remember, Alexi, you said to me that you felt sad for yourself, but you felt more sad for him and I think that that's something that I still find true is that the idea of your partner dying so young that their lives didn't get to continue like my life is 
still going and it's you know there's obviously a lot of sadness and difficulty around losing someone but for him it was like oh we didn't get to have kids and he didn't get to go on the trip to Spain that we wanted to go on and just all the things that he's missed and he's continuing to miss I think that's a really complicated part because you can't say it's not like when a 90 year old grandmother dies and you can say well they had a good life and you know maybe their quality of life was not great at the end it's like no they were doing great and still had a lot of things to do you're the part that like adds one of the layers of complications is that you're grieving the life that you had with that person and you're also grieving the loss of the life that you didn't get to have or the life that they didn't get to have so you're grieving like stuff that hasn't even happened yet so that is a weird thing to grieve i think for me the unexpected sudden death of a young person for my grief it brought so my husband died after died from an accidental overdose and he had struggled with mental health issues and um, substance use issues for like half of our relationship. So for about eight years, he struggled with addiction and um, depression and anxiety. So his death for me brought, you know, the, it brought sadness, but it has brought a lot of complicated other emotions, which has added a lot of complications to my grief. So there's like a lot of anger for, um, what his addiction did to not only to him, but what it did to me and to our family and to our children's future. There is coping with the, the emotions around my happiness and my relief that he's died um, because my life arguably is a lot easier now that I'm not living with someone who's struggling with substance use. And so then the mental work to untangle your feelings of happiness that you're my best friend and my partner in life, that I'm happy that he died, like that is a weird really awful place to be in your mind so working through those emotions and i i know for all of us it so a super rare uncommon thing has happened to all of us losing our partner to these super unexpected causes of death and so it really rocks your your like sense of safety in the world i know that with a new partner since my husband has died i've definitely checked his breathing while he's sleeping and i've definitely worried to an unhealthy degree when he like doesn't call me back in a reasonable amount of time so those are the like ripples that will continue on from these unexpected deaths that that are not like classically part of grief but it has changed the way changed the way i view the world and what what i know to be true in the world so yeah it's definitely there's definitely a lot of complications yeah my experience is similar to to Sarah's and my partner also died from accidental overdose and the grief was almost like just the start of really processing also what seems like a lifetime we're together for you know most like basically my whole adult life and so we were processing after this after I started doing like grief processing processing this whole other partnership and this relationship and this life that I hadn't done any work on while he was alive and so it really kind of blew this whole thing open for doing work and you know thinking about what my identity was and what he was like as a partner what i was like as a partner and the grief is just i don't know it was almost like that was the um like the impetus for for this whole other lifetime of processing that needs to now continue one thing that i've recently been thinking about a lot that i've come to is 
the idea that a short life isn't a bad life um, and that you can you can have a full and meaningful and enjoyable life in a short period of time. I like tend to think about it like I was thinking about it when I was watching the Oscars the other night that, you know, there's short films and there's long films and a short film isn't less worthy than a long film. It's not a lesser story and it's not a lesser, it's not less important in the way that it's told. It's just shorter. And so, you know, the same way you would think about a story, you know, there's short stories and there's, there's long stories and, and both can be good. And so I sort of think of it like his, his story had one chapter, his book had one chapter and mine at this point has two, you know, and, and maybe it'll just have two, maybe it will have three, um, but they're just different lengths and, and it doesn't mean it's worse. And that has given me a little bit of comfort in knowing that as sad as it is, and, and it's, as Shannon said, it's so heartbreaking to think of all the things that they miss, especially, I find, especially with respect to my daughter, like he's missing her growing up and that part will never get easier. That will always be what makes me the most sad. But I do now think of his life as being a wonderful life and a, he lived so fully and he enjoyed every moment and he was, you know, he he did more in his few years than some people will do in 90s. So I've come to look at it as he did live a full life. It just wasn't as long. To unlock the rest of this episode and to hear more episodes, visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod.